So I have to admit that I um, hate, and that's not exactly too strong of a word for this, I do kind of hate cheese balls. Now, I, I know some of you have a loving relationship with cheese balls, especially the cheap kind that you buy in the giant plastic bin that like is a, a, a bucket barrel kind of thing that's like this big, and it's just, you know, balls of, of cheese puffs all the way down. I, I hate them, but if I eat one, I can't stop. Like, I don't like the things. I don't think they're a pleasant food. I don't think the texture is great. I don't really think the flavor is great. But there's something about a cheese puff, cheese ball, that if you eat one of them, it's just like you can't stop. And I learned recently that that is a a thing that food engineers, and yes, there are food engineers, there are food engineers who design foods in such a way. It's called the bliss point. Just yesterday, uh, Jen and I were talking about what we wanted to have for our Super Bowl snacks, and um, I, I was reminded that two weeks ago, last, last Sunday actually, Jen and I were in Walmart, and we're walking around, and I noticed we were in the chip aisle, and we were going to buy some you know, tortilla chips, because I like salsa and, and chips and stuff, but we're walking down the aisle, and I see this bright yellow, plain Jane, ordinary, normal-looking bag of snack food called Lay's Potato Chips, and I stopped and I stared at them for a moment, because I just had this realization, where it was like, why in the world, in the midst of all of these chips... Do I think these ones are worth buying? And I had to admit to myself, I stopped there, I I said, I pointed them out, I looked at Jen, I was like, you know, out of all of these chips here, I still think these are the best. There's just something great about being, you know, simple and straightforward. And so yesterday, of course, you know, we're asking, we're talking about the Super Bowl snacks that she's going to buy for me, and, and she says, now, Lay's potato chips are your favorite, right? Lay's potato chips are your favorite, right? And I said, you know what? They're not actually my favorite, but there's something so satisfying about them, something so satisfying about a Lay's potato chip. And all of a sudden, it hit me. The word satisfying is the main word. All of the other chips are engineered with all kinds of seasoning and stuff, the the cheese balls, the, the Doritos. All of the other things are engineered in such a way that with every single chip, you are unsatisfied and you want more, you need more, you have to have more. It's this engineered dissatisfaction that we all live with in our food world and in the rest of our world. There's nothing much you can do to make Lay's potato chips more addicting. They're just, you know, potatoes, salt, and it's been fried. And I mean, it's great, but it's different than all the other ones. And I know you know what I mean by that. You see, we live in a world of engineered dissatisfaction. We live in a world that I would say is addicted to dissatisfaction. We are addicted to the idea of pursuit, the idea that the thing that we really want is still out there. Maybe the next pistachio will crack open in just the perfect way. Maybe the next Dorito will have just an extra dose of MSG on it. Maybe the next cup of 
Coca-Cola, Pepsi, soda, whatever you want to have. Maybe the next cup is going to be the one that really inspires me. We all have this idea that the next thing just might be the best thing. And so we're addicted to pursuit. We're addicted to chasing after something ineffable. And I believe it's because that's the way God made us. God made us to be people who were always in pursuit. But not in pursuit of some food, not in pursuit of some experience, not in pursuit of some achievement, not in pursuit of some activity. I believe God wired us up to be people who were always in pursuit of Him. Because see, God knew that He was infinite. And so there was no possible way for us to ever, in the history of the entire universe, if we are created beings with a a finite beginning, then even if we live into infinity, we will never exhaust the knowledge of who God is. We will never exhaust the experience of being with Him. And God wants us to be with Him, so He wired us up to be unsatisfied with everything else. And so we are always constantly in pursuit of Him. But long, long ago, our pursuit got derailed. As early as the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve looked at the fruit that God said would kill them, and they said, no, we like that better than what God has said. And we started pursuing the things that were away from God. We're going to be looking over the next couple of months, really, we're going to be looking at a single book called Samuel. Now, in our Bibles, it shows up as 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, but the original Hebrew Bibles just used a scroll, a single scroll, and the book of Samuel was all on one scroll, but scrolls could be much larger than individual books could when bookbinding started, and so they split it up into two volumes, 1 and 2 Samuel. It's one consistent story from beginning to end, and so we're going to go through it all the way from beginning to end, and as we do, You're going to see the people in these stories are just like you and me. They're people who are constantly pursuing something. They're people who are constantly chasing something down. Sometimes the chasing after is obvious. Sometimes the chasing after is not so much, and we have to do a little more digging. But as we go through this book of Samuel, I'm going to give you three kind of formative questions to consider. Three questions that we're going to be kind of asking and thinking about throughout the entire journey. And the first question is about each individual character. We're going to ask them, what are they chasing and why? What is the thing that they're after? What is the thing that they're pursuing? And you're going to see each one of the key characters in this story is clearly chasing something. In fact, if we go into the book of Kings, you're going to see some of the main characters there chasing a lot of things too. But the book of Samuel, I think, gives it to us more clearly, more explicitly. But there's also an interesting twist. You see, there's one character, David, who does some chasing of his own, But what's fascinating about his story is that for about half of the first book, David is being chased. He is being chased by someone else. And so that changes the question that we ask. It's not just the question of what is David chasing, but it's also the question of who's chasing him and why. 
So we're going to ask the first question, what are they chasing? We're asking a second question, well, who's chasing them? And I think what you're going to find is throughout the book, there is one character who is chasing all of them. You see, it's God. And behind the scenes of all of these little people running around, running after all the things that they're pursuing, there is a God who is pursuing each of them. And that leads me to the third question we're going to be asking each one of these weeks. Effectively, where do I fit in this story? Which character do I align with? Which character do I want to align with? How is that person chasing the thing that I want to chase? And how is that person being chased by the thing that's chasing me? And how is that person an expression of the kind of person I want to be or the kind of person I don't want to be? Where do I fit into this story? And so as we go through these few chapters, I wanted to start today by giving you more of a generic overview. Now, I, I thought about just diving right in, jumping right in both feet, and going all the way through chapter 4 today. You know, and we would talk about the story of Hannah, we'd talk about the story of Samuel, we'd talk about the story of Eli and his sons, and we'd go all the way to the first death, or the, the first few deaths in the book, going through chapter 4. And I, because we need to average like four chapters a week. And so I thought about doing that, but I figured, no, today I'm going to let you off a little easy. Some of you have your minds on the football game. Some of you have your minds on some kids who are rambunctious. I don't know what's going on in your household, your life, so I'm just going to give you one more week of warning. Next week, going to be difficult. It's going to be deep. It's going to be a deep dive, and you might want to go ahead and do some homework before then. You know, read Samuel 1, 2, 3, and 4. Get yourself a little familiar with it so that I can talk faster next week, and we'll all still be on the same page. I think that would be an okay thing. But today... Today, I'm just going to give you kind of an overview, an overview of where Samuel fits in the broader narrative context of the Old Testament, and an overview of the book of Samuel, First and Second Samuel, the book of Samuel by itself also. So we're going to start with kind of a timeline, and this timeline covers around 2,000 years. Now, we've covered up till now in the past history of our church, I've gone through Old Testament books in order. We've done Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Judges, Ruth, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and now it's time for us to get to First and Second Samuel. So we're just following along, but the thing that I haven't really given you is kind of an overall timeline of the entire history of the Old Testament so that you can get a framework for where all these different pieces fit in. So we're going to start with Abraham. Abraham is way there about 2000 BC. Now, these are kind of guesses when it comes to Abraham because there are a lot of missing dates when we get to the time around Moses. And so it's hard for us to figure out exactly when things happened. But based on the numbers that are given to us in the Bible, we know that there's an average of about 500 years in each of these narrative sections. In each of these narrative sections, there's around 500 years that is being covered by the thing that is being talked about. And so we start Abraham around 2000 BC. And then way over here, Jesus, we're going to get, he's, you know, we should put Jesus like, you know, on this side of that number right there because, I mean, he's at, he's at zero BC, right? Technically speaking, probably six BC or four BC is when Jesus was born. I can't get into all the technical reasons why, but Abraham, somewhere back 
around 2,000 years before Jesus. Then Abraham's grandson Jacob comes on the scene, and he, because of a whole lot of different factors, ends up taking his family to move to Egypt. And so he moves to Egypt, and in Egypt they spend 400 years, and a large number of those years they are slaves. And so God made a covenant with Abraham, and then his grandson, which would have been about 100 years later, his grandson is taking them to Egypt, and they spend a few hundred years there. And then we finally come to Moses. Moses is the first character in the next 500-ish year phase. Because Moses shows up on the scene, and God makes kind of a new covenant with Moses, but that all happens in the wilderness. And the key thing you need to remember about the Moses story is that he goes into Egypt, he frees the people from their slavery, brings them out in the wilderness, they go straight to the mountain of God where he gives them his his rules and regulations for how they're supposed to live as a people, and then they go straight from that mountain to the promised land. But when they get to the promised land, they're too scared to do anything about it, and they won't go into the land God is giving them. And so as a result, God says, fine then, if you don't want to take the land I'm giving you, then you will take the land you asked for, which is the wilderness. And they wander in the wilderness for 40 years until a whole generation of them dies. And then at the end of those 40 years, they come back to the promised land Moses dies, and the next guy takes over. It's Joshua. And it's during the time of Joshua that we get the conquest of Canaan. That's when the people of Israel go into the land of Canaan, and they march through the land, and their job is to push out or to kill the people who are already there. And so I have to pause here just one more time to identify a couple things. Yes, There are places in the Bible, lots of them in fact, and we're going to find more of them in the book of Samuel, lots of places where it seems like God is encouraging genocide, where it seems like God is encouraging the complete eradication of a group of people. And so, as a result, I have to comment on that just a little bit. Now, I said this back when we were talking about Joshua, and it's important to remember again that God gave one command to one group of people one time. And that one command to one group of people one time was the people who live in the land that you are entering have had their shot with me and blown it. The people who live in the land, I have tested them, I have given them chance after chance after chance to follow me, and they will not follow me, and so it's time for you to just move them on out. This was God, the creator of the universe, issuing a death sentence on guilty people one time. And so he says, I want you people, the Israelites, to go in and to get them all out of the land. In some cases, you're going to kill them all. In some cases, you're going to push them out. But they're all going to be gone because they've had their shot and now I'm judging them. There are a couple things you need to remember though. First, God never told the Israelites that they were special. He said they just happened to be chosen. It's like when you open up your silverware drawer and you've got 12 knives in there, you've got 12 forks, you've got 12 spoons and you're getting ready to have your cereal, and you just grab one of the spoons. That spoon isn't special. It just happened to be chosen. 
It's just like all the other spoons, but it's the one you chose. And God says, Israel, you're no special people. You just happen to be the people I'm choosing for this job of judgment. And so, that's another thing. It's not genocide in the sense that God loves the Israelites and hates the other people. It's that God is using them for judgment. There's another thing you need to remember, though. And the other thing is that we human beings have this weird tendency to think that life ends with death. We have this weird idea that everything about the human existence is the time frame between birth and death. And God knows better. God knows better. He knows that the human existence goes on for eternity. And so what God's eternal plan is for those people, he never told us. All he knows and all we know is that God is done with their earthly time. And their earthly time is going to be over because they have been disobedient. Now, I could spend a lot more time talking about that, and we will, in fact, cover this ground a little bit more in the book of Samuel, because there are a few times when Samuel kills some people, and it seems indiscriminate, and we have to address that when we come to it. But I just want to remind you that it's all part of this one command, one time, that the land God had given them would be cleared out of all of their enemies. They failed to do so, and so they had to deal with this for a long period of time. Nonetheless, Joshua and conquest is kind of at the early phase of that 500 time span. Then after Joshua dies, a group of people come called the Judges. And during the time of the Judges, we've covered this ground in our study through the Judges, there was no king, and what would happen is the, the people would fade away from following God, God would bring an oppressive force into their nation, and they would then cry out to God and say, God, would you save us? And so God would send a person that they called a judge who would enter onto the scene and he would do three things. He would judge the enemies. He would save the Israelites. And then he would judge the Israelites. He would act as their governor, leader, decision maker for a period of time. So he would judge the enemies. He would save the Israelites. And then he would judge the Israelites too. And so that's kind of why he got called judge. And there was, in fact, a woman named Deborah who was even a judge at one point, too. And so that whole judge thing was this this up and down sequence of they follow God because they have a leader who's judging them, and then they fall away, they get oppressed, they call for a Savior, God provides a Savior, they follow God through the Savior for a period of time until the Savior goes, and then they fade away. The book of Judges ends with this verse. It says, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Now, before we dig deeply into Samuel, it's important to remember this line. Because everything up to this point has taught us a lesson. It's a lesson that you and I repeatedly learn. It's a lesson that you and I repeatedly need to remember. It's a lesson that whenever people are on their own, They just never put God first. Anytime people are left to their own devices, they just never put God first. We never put God first. 
unless there's some leader guiding us, unless there is, in the case of the people of the judges and the early Israelites, unless there is a king who is willing to save us and judge us, unless we have a king like that, we're never going to put God first. We're always going to do our own thing. We're always going to pursue our own stuff. In fact, that's kind of the heart of the questions that we're going to be dealing with through Samuel. Is this a person who is pursuing God or is this a person who's pursuing something else? Well, let's get back to the timeline because Judges, immediately after Judges, there's this tiny little book that we covered called Ruth. And it's a fabulous book. It's a wonderful book. And it's a book that has incredible value for us today. It just so happened that we covered the book of Ruth before we really needed all the lessons in Ruth. So maybe that was a good thing. Maybe that wasn't a bad, maybe it was a bad thing. But I'll give you just a quick rundown of the story of Ruth. In the time of the judges, it says, there was a woman who is married to a man and they have two sons and their two sons, they all four of them decide to move to a different land, the land of Moab. Why? Because there's a famine in Israel. God was supposed to take care of the people of Israel, but now there's a famine in Israel. And so they're like, well, God has abandoned us. He's abandoned the land. We might as well go somewhere else. And so they go to a land called Moab. While they're in Moab, the sons marry two Moabite women. And also, while they're in Moab, all the men die. The husband dies, the two sons die, and now it's just these three women. So it's like God abandoned them in Israel, and now they're in Moab, and they feel abandoned again. It's tragedy upon tragedy. So Naomi, the mom, decides she's going to go back to Israel and just become a beggar because then at least she's going to be around people who might care for her. And she's heard that the famine is no longer there. So, okay, let's go on back. So she goes back. Ruth tags along with her. And the two of them just try to eke out a living. But the key thing is, through the four short chapters of Ruth, Ruth proves herself to be a faithful, humble person who then meets a guy named Boaz, who proves, proves himself to be a faithful, humble person. And then it's told in the story that God has put them together so that Ruth, a faithful, humble person, plus Boaz, a faithful, humble person, with God's providence, can do an amazing thing. Let me show you. This is how the book of Ruth ends. In chapter 4, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now I know you. You're like, well, who's Obed, and who's Jesse, and who's David, and why should I care? David is the main character of the book we are about to read. David is the greatest king of all time. David is the metaphor for Jesus himself when Jesus shows up. And so the point of the book of Ruth, and this is, I've spent a little extra time on it just because I think it's that important. The point of the book of Ruth, especially in the context of the book of Judges, is when God is involved, tragedies become blessings. Two people pursuing God, two people who are just living lives in faithfulness and humility, when God gets involved, even tragedies turn into blessings. And not just normal blessings, like big blessings. 
Okay, let's get back to the timeline. So there's Ruth. After Ruth, we then come to the book of Samuel. Samuel shows up on the scene, and he becomes a judge and a prophet, which is weird. Because Samuel acts like a judge, just like all the other judges. In fact, at one point in time, he's called a judge. But Samuel is also called a prophet, just like Moses. And so Samuel is kind of like jumping back into history, and he's got a little bit of Moses, he's got a little bit of the judges in him, and it just proves to us that Samuel is way better than any of the other ones who came before him. Samuel's a lot more like Moses than he is like any of the judges. He's a good one, and we find out it's because his heart is squared away with God constantly. But let's keep going. After Samuel, we come to David. And David is really where the new 500-year time span starts. There's just one problem. He's the highlight. All the rest of the stuff in that time span, and in fact, all the rest of the stuff in the next time span, are pretty much forgettable. See, after David... God made a new covenant with David, and he said, I'm going to make your kingdom a forever kingdom. But David's own son, Solomon, did kind of a bad job. He oppressed the people with taxes. He made the country all wealthy, but at the same time, there was an incredible problem with poverty. And people were hard-pressed by their own government. And so as a result, when Solomon died, the kingdom divided And that divided kingdom is where we get the books of the kings and the books of the prophets. And it's just kind of a jumble. And if you ever read through all that stuff, you're like, how do all these pieces fit together? And one of the reasons it's hard to piece them all together for a lot of people is just that there's so much just crud that happens. Until eventually, God says, I'm done. We're just going to give you all a time out. And he sends them off into exile. And so exile happens, and then they return, and then there's about 400 years of total silence where God doesn't send a prophet at all until Jesus. And so the whole Bible, the Old Testament, can be divided up into kind of these 500-year-long historical bunches. Now, this isn't to scale, of course, and so I wanted to show you that David, we're pretty sure that his reign begins at 1010 B.C. We're pretty sure that his death happens at 970 B.C. because we're almost 100% sure that Solomon died at 931 B.C. And so as a result, we can say that David's reign begins around 1010 B.C. And this red box right here is the stuff we're going to be studying in the next few weeks couple of months. This box right here is the book of First and Second Samuel. And so there's your timeline. Hopefully that helps you a little bit to get an understand of where this, understanding of where this fits in the broader context of the Old Testament. But I want to do one other thing with you this morning before we end our time, and that is to give you a very quick rundown of the key chronological points in First and Second Samuel. And so if you have our app, you'll have these notes with you. You can just tap back into them and you can see this little timeline kind of that I'm going to put up here on the screen in a little bit. It's not a chart form. It's just a bunch of bullet points. But here we go. The book of Samuel begins with a woman named Hannah. She's a woman who has a lot of problems, namely that she can't conceive and have a child. And secondly, the other wife, yes, she's in a household with two wives and the other wife keeps making fun of her about it. This is a woman who's got a lot of stress in her life and so she turns to God. And she seeks out God 
And he honors her by giving her a son named Samuel. And you'll see this pattern play out time and time again. Now, I want to just be clear. God doesn't make a promise that if you seek him, he will give you everything that you want. That's not how it works. What God does, though, is that if you seek him, he will meet you. And sometimes where he meets you is in exactly the place you were hoping for him to meet you. Sometimes where he meets you is in some other place. And with Hannah, it's 50-50. God meets her by giving her a son. But as part of that meeting her, her son becomes dedicated to God for his entire life. And so he spends a large portion of his life not living at home with his mom, but instead living with the priest. So it's an interesting kind of situation for her. But let's keep moving on, because the next thing we come across is Samuel. Samuel seeks God, and God turns him into a leader over all Israel. After Samuel has become a leader, then the people start begging God for a king, begging Samuel for a king, and God's like, fine, if you don't want to seek me, I will give you someone else to seek. And they find a guy named Saul, God chooses him, makes him the king, and ironically, this is a little hint for something we're going to get to, on the day Saul becomes king, they can't find him. They literally have to go on a hide-and-seek adventure to seek for the guy who's going to be the king, and they find him hiding amidst a bunch of luggage. But anyway, we'll get to that when we get to that hide-and-seek game in a few weeks. The next thing we come across is Saul himself. Saul seeks his own fame, so God rejects him. Then we come to David. David, we find, is a guy who pursues God. And so God, in response, chooses David. It's a very interesting thing. David is seeking God, and once again, just like with Hannah, just like with Samuel, God meets David. Let me show you what it says in 2 Samuel here. It says, but now your kingdom will not endure. This is Samuel making a prophecy to Saul about his dynasty. Samuel says, your kingdom, your dynasty will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler over his people because you've not kept the Lord's command. This is one of the most important verses in the entire book because this is the verse that gives us our understanding of why David and not Saul. And it all boils down to this. The Lord wants someone who wants the Lord. The Lord seeks the person who is seeking the Lord. David is after God, and so God is after David. David is seeking God. God is seeking David. David's pursuing God. God's pursuing David. And that is what the whole book is about. If you're a person who seeks God, God will meet you. If you're not, he won't. And so then the rest of the story, let's just work our way through it. Saul then becomes a guy who chases David, but David just keeps winning. Then Saul tries to chase down his own safety. He even goes to a, a medium to try to find out his future. Is my future secure? Am I going to survive and all this kind of stuff? But he's chasing his own safety, but he is eventually defeated in battle. 
Then we get to 2 Samuel. In 2 Samuel, it's very brief the way we get to describe it. David starts his kingdom, and God starts a new covenant. And then the whole rest of the book of 2 Samuel is just one sentence. This. David repeatedly loses focus on God, faces disaster, but then returns to God in humility, and God brings restoration. The whole rest of the book of 2 Samuel is basically David kind of living the cycle of the judges. But what is different from David and everyone else who's come before him is that when David makes a mistake, he himself turns back to God. You don't have to wait for a whole generation to die. He turns back to God. You don't have to wait for a new king to rise up. He turns back to God. And the thing we learn about David is that even though he periodically sometimes chases after the wrong thing, his heart always comes back to the proper pursuit. And so the summary for the whole thing, book one and two of Samuel, is actually in David's own final words. It, it, there's just one problem. The best rendition of David's final words comes in a different book. It comes in the book of 2 Chronicles, not the book of 2 Samuel. And so, excuse me, 1 Chronicles, not the book of 2 Samuel. And so I'm going to put that up here on the screen here because David, at the end of his life, is now going to give his final words to his son Solomon. And he says these things. Amazing. You, my son Solomon... Acknowledge the God, your fa- the God of your father and serve him wholehearted devotion and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches every heart and understands every desire and every thought. And here it is. This is the key idea. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. Consider now, for the Lord has chosen you to build a house as the sanctuary. Be strong and do the work. At the end of David's life, he has gotten everything prepared for the temple of God to be built in Jerusalem. That's how 2 Samuel ends. And Solomon's charge is to build the temple. Yeah, that's one thing he's supposed to do. But the most important thing Solomon is supposed to do is to keep pursuing God. The lesson of 1st and 2nd Samuel, the lesson of this book that we call Samuel, this book's lesson is what David says there at the end of his life. If you seek God, he will be found by you. Listen, there are all kinds of things that we can pursue. There are all kinds of things that we can chase after. There are all kinds of things that we can strive for. But God has made us this incredible promise. If you seek Him, you'll find Him. It's not just the Old Testament, it's the New Testament too. Jesus would say, ask, seek, and knock. If you ask, you'll find. If you seek, you'll find. If you knock, the door will be opened. Jesus says these same things. He says, seek first the kingdom of God and all these other things will be added to you as well. The idea throughout all of Scripture is still the same. Pursue God, and He'll meet you. I hope that's true for you. Whether you're a person who's living through a tragedy like Ruth, whether you're a person who's living through the uncertainty like Judges, 
Whether you're a person who's living through the frustration like Saul, who doesn't understand why someone else is getting all the credit, whatever it is that's going on in your life, you can be a person who turns your attention, turns your desires, turns your pursuit towards God. And if you seek God, He will meet you. This is a promise that we need to latch on to. We're living in an incredibly weird world these days. Lots of things. But the biggest thing that's going on is that we are all addicted to something that we don't have now. We're all addicted to the thing on the other side of the horizon. We're all addicted to the imagination of what's going to happen when that thing in my life changes, when that new era begins. We're addicted to the not yet, and I want you to be a person who's addicted to the pursuit of God, who chases after God. Because the Lord himself is seeking people who are after his heart and not all the other things we might be able to chase after these days. Let me pray for you. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you, God loves you, and His plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.